Psalm 8, verses 1 to 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Good morning, y'all. As most of you know, Jimmy's currently at our mission point in Ghana, West Africa. And he plans to be back in this pulpit on June the 26th. So you're stuck with me for the next three Sundays, counting this one. I'm expecting some people to leave on that note. And so as quickly as possible, I'm going to move on to a reading from Scripture. Maybe you won't walk out on God's Word. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the deep. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. He called the darkness night. Evening passed and morning came, marking the first day. Then God said, let there be a space between the waters to separate the waters in the heavens from the waters on the earth. And that's what happened. God made this space to separate the waters of the earth from the waters of the heaven. And God called the space sky. And evening passed and morning came, marking the second day. Then God said, let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place so dry ground may appear. And that's what happened. And God called the dry ground Land, he called the waters seas, and God saw that it was good. And then God said, Let the land sprout with vegetation, every sort of seed bearing plant, and trees that grow seed bearing fruit. And God saw that it was good. And evening passed, and morning came the third day. Then God said, then God said, let great lights appear in the heavens, in the sky, to separate the day from the night. Let them mark the seasons and days and years. Let these lights in the sky shine down on the earth. And that's what happened. God made two great lights, the sun and the moon, the larger one to govern the day, the smaller one to govern the night. He also made the stars. And God saw that it was good. And evening passed, and morning came, 
marking the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters swarm with fish and other life, and the skies be filled with all kinds of birds. So God created sea creatures, and every living thing that's that scurries and swarms in the water, and every sort of bird, each producing offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Let the fish fill the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And evening passed and morning came, marking the fifth day. And then God said, let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring after its kind, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and wild animals. And that's what happened. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like ourselves. And they will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, the wild animals on the earth, all the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. And then God said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God looked over all that he had made and he saw that it was very good. And evening passed and morning came, marking the sixth day. And so the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day he rested from all his work of creation. We're going to use the early chapters of Genesis as the starting place for the next three sermons. What we believe about these verses either undergirds or undermines our entire understanding of life. What sounds like a children's Bible story, in fact, forms the very foundation of our thinking, our values, and our behavior. So this week, in the beginning, God created. And it gives us a force that's beyond ourselves to guide us and to motivate us to live above Selfish absorption. Next week we'll do, in the beginning, Satan. Satan was present. It, it gives us the source of all that's bad and all that's evil and ultimately, because we know it, protection from it. And two weeks from now, in the beginning, sin. Sin puts self squarely in the middle of the equation so that we can either seize life as a great opportunity to walk with God, or we can take a million roads in the wrong direction, all leading to the same kinds of dead ends. Three weeks. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, Satan was present. In the beginning, self got involved. And now that we've begun, 
let's get going. Genesis 1 and 1 is referring to the beginning of the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created implies that the creator is there in the beginning. He's beyond time. God is radically different from us, and that's what Genesis will show us. Since God created the beginning, he had to exist before the beginning, right? Everything you and I know had a beginning. Everything we are had a beginning. We depended on something to get us started, not God. In the beginning, he was already there. He, he is not, he's not limited by time. And therefore, he interacts with time in ways that, well, we can barely conceive of it, let alone do it ourselves. God's eternal, without beginning, without end. He's not bound by or controlled by time. You and I are. And since time is limited for us, we're controlled by it. One thing we cannot get back is lost time. Time spent. It's spent. It's gone. We can't get it back. Not so for God. The great Christian apologist C.E. Lewis put it this way. God is outside and above the timeline. What we call tomorrow is visible to him in just the same way as what we call today. All the days are now for him. He doesn't remember you doing things yesterday. He simply sees you doing them. He doesn't foresee you doing things tomorrow. He simply sees you doing them because although tomorrow is not yet there for you, it is for him. What does Lewis mean? Well, it could mean that God is in the present, in the past, and in the future simultaneously. He's beyond time. Maybe that's why he knows what's going to come next, because he's already there. Maybe that's why he has such a good memory of what happened, because he's still there watching it. Maybe that's why the Apostle Peter said, a day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. It's if a day for God never ends, but it's always being experienced by him. There's no difference between one and the other. To us, there is. We see an enormous difference between a thousand years and a day. But God doesn't because he is from everlasting to everlasting. Now, any illustration I could give you of this will break down, but it might be helpful to try one. Just imagine watching a parade. We view parades one float at a time, one band at a time, one parade entry at a time, a succession of events. And when it's finished, we look back on the experience and say, I saw the parade. Now imagine yourself in the Goodyear blimp, viewing the whole parade from start to finish. We're aware that there's a sequence, but we're not confined to them. We see everything at once rather than in a sequence of events. That's the way God views our lives in all of human history from the beginning of time. Maybe that's why God's name is I Am. 
and not I was or I will be, but I am. I wonder what God would tell us if we ask him, what year is it? Now, he may have some fun, and he might respond by saying, according to whose calendar? The Gregorian calendar that y'all use, it says it's the year 2016. But the Chinese calendar says it's the year 4713. The Hebrew calendar says it's the year 5776. According to the Islamic calendar, it's 1437. What the Hindus say is really difficult to figure out because they have so many calendars. But let's just say we are in our 21st century and they are in their 52nd century. If we ask God, what year is it? He might say, doesn't make me any difference. I have all the time in the world. And then some. Here's the point. God is beyond what you and I can grasp or understand. His eternality is one of those ways he's beyond us. And it's a big one. And here's the deal. We don't have to worry about God running out of time or getting old and senile and feeble. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can depend on God to be there. He always has been, and he always will be. Adding to the sentence, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, shows us another way that God is so far beyond us. He has power to accomplish things that you and I cannot imagine or begin to, to replicate. He has all power. All-powerful. Now, the fancy word for that is omnipotent. Break it down into two halves and it's easy. Omni, all, potent, powerful. He's all-powerful. Now, as soon as we say God is all-powerful, somebody who thinks they're really smart says, well, then, if God's all-powerful, can he make a four-sided triangle? Can he make two plus two equal five in a base 10 system? Can he make a rock so big he can't lift it? We ask those questions because of three incorrect assumptions about what it means to be omnipotent, all-powerful. The first incorrect assumption is that all-powerful means you can do anything. That's not so. Some things just can't be done. Nobody can make a four-sided triangle because triangles only have three sides, and when you give it a four-sided, it's not a triangle anymore. But here's the thing with God's omnipotence. He has the power to do anything that is subject to power. Another incorrect assumption about omnipotence is all-powerful means will do anything. Not so. God always acts within his character. Once he ceases acting like God, he ceases being God. For example, God is truth. So Titus 1 and 2 tells us he cannot lie. God is pure. 
So James 1 and 13 tells us he cannot be tempted to do evil. God's power is always in keeping with his nature. So please, don't ask God to sin and then tell him he's not all-powerful because he doesn't do it. He won't do anything outside of his character and his nature. A third incorrect assumption about being all-powerful is, is since God can, well, he will. Not so. A lot of things lay within God's power that don't lay within his will. God doesn't do anything just because he can. And I believe that he acts according to his will much more than he acts according to his power. Ah, oh, but what power he has at his disposal. There's an old joke about a group of scientists who got into a debate with God. And they argued they could create a man from the dust of the earth using the laws of evolution. And so they agreed to a contest. God would make a man out of dirt, and they would make a man out of dirt. So God made his man just to show them how it's done. Then it was their turn. And they said to God, where's our dirt? And God smiled and said, you got to make your own dirt. God spoke it. And it was so. Inexplicable power that no human being possesses. Now here's the point. God is powerful in ways we can't grasp or imagine. He can do anything he chooses to do that's doable and meets his approval. You and I cannot. And here's the deal. Since God has all that power at his disposal, what makes you think he's unable to help you? Genesis 1 and 2 tells us something else about God that's radically different from what we are. He exists in a form that you and I cannot fully grasp or understand. The verse says, The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Anytime you think you're like God, just try to hover. Just try. We have to have some sort of assistance to hover. You and I live in a physical world with four known space-time dimensions. Length and width and height or depth and time. But God dwells beyond that in a different realm. In a spirit realm. He not only lives beyond time, he lives beyond place and space. Because God is spirit. He's not limited by the physical laws and dimensions that govern us. I think that's one reason he can be all powerful, all present, and all knowing. Those three omnis, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. A physical body has, has power, but it has limits on its power. Does a spirit? A physical brain can only hold so much knowledge, but what about a spirit? A physical body cannot be everywhere at the same time. But what about a spirit? 
See, God's mysterious existence as a spirit, without need of flesh and bone or without the constraints of time or height or width or length, well, it simply boggles our imagination. But here's the deal. Since God is spirit, why do we try to limit his power or his influence to physical matters, such as length, breadth, or width? Let God be God and don't expect him to be bound by the physical limitations that constrain you and me. We're physical. He is spirit. Okay, one last point. In the creation story we read earlier, God spoke things into existence. He said, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be sky, let there be land, and there was. Let there be daytime and dark, and there was. Let there be plants and trees, and it happened. He said, let there be a sun, moon, and stars. Let the ocean teem with fish and the land with animals. God spoke these things into existence. But when it comes to man and woman, God got his hands dirty, so to speak. Genesis 2 and 7 tells us the Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground. God didn't speak the man into existence. He formed him like a sculptor forms a statue out of clay. Hands-on involvement. The verse goes on to say, Then he breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils and the man became a living person. You ever seen anybody do mouth to mouth? You kind of got to touch lips to do that. You can't do mouth to mouth while they're laying on the ground and you're up here. It just won't work. A person places their mouth against the mouth of another person and breathes into their lungs while that person is unable to do so. And if you're giving mouth to mouth to a baby, you put your mouth over both the baby's mouth and nose when you breathe for them. God did that with Adam. And then verse 22 tells us that God took a rib from the man, and then he took the rib and he made a woman. Made a woman from the rib. The original Hebrew term there for made could also mean built. God formed the man. He built the woman. He didn't speak either of them into existence. Now, here's the point. When it comes to humans, God did more than speak. He formed, he built, he did mouth to mouth. A level of intimacy no other part of nature seems to have received. And here's the deal. If God was so intimately involved in creating human beings, why on earth do we think he no longer desires to be involved in our lives? Too many people are like a, a post I read on the internet this week. A discussion group was talking about the influence of God in our lives. And one person said this. I see him as having sent us off to college. He gets our letters. He watches us via webcams. He sends us care packages every now and then. He can't wait till we get to come home and tell him about all the things we've experienced. In the meantime, however, we're doing this mostly on our own. You see my overall point about how our understanding of God 
forms the very foundation of our thinking, our behavior, our values. In the beginning, God created leaves a different set of conclusions than in the beginning there was nothing which exploded. Wow. So based on what we've seen from Genesis 1 and 2, I'll conclude by restating four truths about God from Genesis. But I'm going to frame them as questions because you have to give your own answers. And your answers will either diminish God to a point of nothingness in your life or it will allow him to revolutionize your life. Since God exists beyond time, what makes you think he's not active right now? Why would he choose this time to cease to engage in his creation? He's the everlasting to the everlasting. Since God is all power, what makes us think he won't use some of that on our behalf? Do you quarantine God and put him in a box, a box of useless inactivity? You didn't get that picture of God from Genesis. Since God is spirit, why do we limit his power and his influence to within the physical laws of nature? I mean, do you see God as an eternal life form with presence and power beyond anything you can imagine? Or does he have to keep all the physical laws that govern your life? And finally, since God was so intimately involved in creating humans, what makes us think he's not involved in our lives today? Has he gone away, sent us off to school, hopes to see us one day when we can report, but right now we're pretty much on our own? Is that the picture of God that Genesis paints? Please, let the Genesis story undergird your understanding of God. Otherwise, as we'll see next Sunday, Satan will come along and he will convince you of a lie. And that lie will leave you with a God who's either dead, uninterested in you, or just too feeble to bless your life. End. This is the end of the sermon. But there's another end coming. The end of this creation. And God says, when that comes... He'll hold us accountable for how we live this life. It's important that we see the world with a proper understanding of God because the end is coming and God will hold us responsible for our behavior, for our thoughts, for our actions, for our values. And when you believe there's a God in heaven like I've described for you today, it invigorates your life to be like him. If you have one of those gods who's he's in a box somewhere, can't do much, won't do much, doesn't care, he's gone. Doesn't give you much power, does it?
We're going to sing an invitation song because I know at times people are here and beyond anything I've said, they, they just need some prayer time with our shepherds. And shepherds will be at the front and at the back. And if you're in that place right now where you need prayer, seek one of them out and they will be more than happy to talk to God with you and for you and about you. We're going to stand and sing to make that convenient. So would you stand? <clears throat>